Working our way through the book of 1 Samuel here on uh, Wednesday evenings. We are in chapter 11. We left off with Saul being anointed king over Israel. And we saw there in chapter 10, verse 26, it said, And Saul also went home to Gibeah, and valiant men went with him whose hearts God had touched. And we noted what a great start that was for, for the, the new king here, the first king in Israel, that, that not only was the Lord with him, God's anointing upon him, but God brought alongside of him valiant men whose hearts had been touched by God. And I tell you, that is something that I think all of us really should desire, that we would want to have those type of of friendships and those type of people involved in our life, those who are are valiant or in the sense have a zeal for God and whose hearts have been touched, radically touched by the Lord. Well, in chapter 11, we see Saul's first test here as king. We pick it up in verse 1. Then Naash, the Ammonite, came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Naash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. And Naash, the Ammonite, answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out your right eye and bring reproach on all of Israel. Now, Jabesh Gilead is on the other side of the Jordan River. It's in that area of the tribe of Gath. And the Ammonites came from the area which is the capital of Jordan today, that area called Ammon, from which they got that name, the the Ammonites. And the Ammonites had been severely defeated by the Israelites during the period of the Judges. If you were here with us during that time of Bible study, you might recall when Japheth led the army down there against them and God used Japheth to beat them soundly. And it was a great victory for the people of Israel. But now about a hundred years later, they are rising up in power again. And Naash gathers together an army and comes against this Israelite city of Jabesh Gilead. And the men there offered to surrender because they didn't want to suffer. And so they say to him, make a covenant with us, make a treaty. We'll, we'll, we'll pay tribute to you. We'll pay taxes to you. We'll be your servants. We don't want to fight you. And these men realized that they weren't able to meet and fight against this army that Nahash had, had assembled together. And rather being, than being wiped out, they, they, they took the concept that they would seek to make a treaty with them to try to maybe soften the blow a little bit. Well, when the men of Jabesh Gilead asked Nahash for a covenant, he agrees to settle peaceably with them on one condition. If all the men in the city have their right eyes gouged out. Now, why did Naash demand this? Why did he want them to have their right eyes gashed out? Well, of all the things that he could have demanded, the reason why he asks of this is because it was to glorify himself by humiliating the men of this city and all of Israel. 
You see, by half blinding the men of the city, it would bring reproach on all of Israel. And by making Israel look weak and and unable to prevent such an atrocity from taking place. So it was a move on his part to really bring reproach upon Israel, to to humiliate them amongst their enemies and to really send a message to the other tribes there in Israel. And secondly, it was to make the men of Jabesh Gilead unable to fight effectively in battle. You see, in hand-to-hand combat, having both of your eyes is really, really important. It's essential that you have a good, you know, depth perception, a good peripheral vision there in hand to hand combat. So he was seeking to weaken them by gouging out the right eye. Now, this is interesting to me, though, that the name Naash means serpent or snake. And I think that we see a great similarity here between Satan, our spiritual enemy, and Naash, the enemy of Jabesh Gilead here in Israel. And there's several things, if you're taking notes, I'd like to just draw in similarity between the two. Number one, Satan attacks us or seeks to attack us, but really cannot do anything against us without our agreement. We have the victory in Christ. And Satan will come in and he'll seek to intimidate us But really, in order for him to to have any true victory in our lives, it requires a surrender on our behalf. And that's what Naash was asking for. Number two, Satan wants us to serve him and will attempt to uh, intimidate us to, to give in to serving him. He's an intimidator. Peter calls him a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But his teeth have been knocked out. And so his roar is is that for intimidation's sake. It's to intimidate us. Number three, Satan does want to humiliate us and exalt himself over us. And as he if he can exalt himself and humiliate really one child of God, one saint, saint in a in a in a group, he it can bring reproach upon all the rest. And we've seen that, haven't we, in the church? As spiritual leaders fall, are exposed for some secret sin and involved in their life and how it brings a reproach upon the whole church. It brings a stain upon the whole church. Number four, Satan wants wants to blind us. And if he can't blind us completely, he will blind us or seek to blind us partially. His goal, one of his chief desires in your life and in my life is to distort our perception concerning what, what life is about, to distort our perception concerning what our priorities should be, to to distort our perception about what we should be living for, to distort our perception about eternity. This is one of his biggest tactics today. He seeks to do this through the entertainment industry, through the cares of this life, through the things that this world says are important. And all of it is is his attempt to blind the people of God, to distort our vision in one way or another. And in doing all of those first four things, what he's hoping is, is that he would, number five, be able to take away our ability to effectively fight against him. 
And so we see this similarity between Naash and between our enemy, the devil. We pick it up in verse three. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. And so the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now, there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. Now, this again shows Saul's humility. He's been anointed king, but he's not demanding here or even expecting to be treated like a king. He's just gone back to his normal thing. He's out there in the fields tending the herd. He's acting like a common guy just out there amongst the people. And this is a good trait for anybody who seeks to be involved in in ministry, anybody who who seeks for God to to use their life, that they wouldn't seek to be propped up on some platform or pedestal, but they would just seek to be a normal, ordinary guy that God might work through, that God might use in their lives. Saul here, we see again his humility that, you know, he's just out tending the sheep, taking care of the flock. So Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. And then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news and his anger was greatly aroused. Now, this is interesting to me. We read here that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul. This is essential for ministry. It's essential for service. It's essential for leadership that the Spirit of God would come upon an individual. This is an Old Testament reference to what we would call in the New Testament, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That spirit of the spirit of God coming upon someone to empower them to get a hold of their life, to use them at a particular moment and a particular time for a particular need. We see this often in the men that God would work through and use in the Old Testament, that this phrase is used often and the spirit of God came upon them. We see it over and over again in the life of Samuel, that the spirit of God would come upon him and it would be that spirit of God coming upon him that that was just he would be endowed with great strength. That he would have supernatural abilities to take on great armies, to defeat massive groups of the Philistines who would come against the people of Israel. And here we see it in the life of Saul. And this is something that is essential for service. It was essential in the Old Testament. And it's also essential for us living here in the New Covenant that just like the disciples, they were unable to go out and do anything really for the Lord of any eternal value until they had been baptized by the Holy Spirit. We need that church. And if you read there in the book of Acts, it's interesting that you read over and over several times and Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it would be a new situation that he would come into. And it would say again, and Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter five, verse 18, that we are to be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. 
It's not a one-time filling, but it's a, a consistent, a continual recognition of our dependency upon the Holy Spirit and that need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. D.L. Moody was once asked why he stressed this point of being filled time and time again. And he simply said, it's simple. I leak. You know, that's why I need to keep being filled. And there's truth in that. And so we see here, but this is what's interesting. On this occasion, the Spirit of God comes upon Saul and he's filled with the Spirit. And the result is, is he is filled with a righteous anger. His anger was aroused and it's directly connected in the text here to him being filled, being empowered, the Spirit of God coming upon him. He's filled with this righteous anger. Now, this is an interesting byproduct to me of being filled with the Spirit of the Spirit of God coming upon someone. You see, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter four, verse 26 to to be angry, but don't sin. And so there's a place for having a righteous indignation but not letting it go to the point where it becomes and turns into bitterness and resentfulness and that type of thing. Be, be angry, but don't sin, Paul said. Now, most of the time, our anger is very selfish. It's all about us. We've been hurt. We've been wronged. And, and so there's a, we get angry over it. We get angry about it. But Saul's anger here is not out of a personal sense of hurt or a personal sense of being offended, but it's out of a righteous concern, a righteous cause for the people of God. It's a righteous concern for the cause of the Lord among his people. You see, the Bible tells us that our God is a jealous God. He's a jealous God. And it's that jealousy for his people that causes him to be angered and causes him to move upon the heart of a leader in an instant like this to be angered. The spirit coming upon him and he's he, there's an ang, there's an anger there that that is aroused and it's spirit led, it's spirit directed. This anger here because his people are being threatened. God's a jealous God. He's jealous for his people. He doesn't like to see his people hurt. He doesn't like to see his people taken advantage of. You know, one particular animal that you don't want to mess with is a mother bear or her cubs. A mother bear can get very, very intensely violent when somebody is threatening her cubs. And that's where that phrase comes from as it relates to, to some of you ladies and, 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 and how you have that same instinct in you when, you know, somebody's coming against one of your kids, you know, there's that phrase there that, yeah, she's being a mother bear. It's that, that intensity, like, you know, you better watch yourself. You're treading on dangerous territory here because you're coming against, you know, my little ones or you're, you're putting down, you know, my son or my daughter. And there's that instinct in you. Well, in, in, in one sense, God has that same instinct toward his kids. He's a jealous God. He's jealous for our welfare. Jesus was filled 
with this righteous indignation. When he went into the temple and he saw that the religious leaders had turned it into a a swap meet, if you would. And they were ripping off the people of God. They were charging high prices for sacrifices and and, and the various things that went on there in the temple. And and Jesus came in and, and we see this picture of Jesus that we really don't like to think about. He grabs a whip and he comes through and he's, you know, he's snapping that whip. He's overturning tables and he's driving out. He's driving out the money changers. He's driving out the religious leaders. For two reasons. One, because they were ripping off the people of God and it just incensed him. And two, they had turned God's temple which was to be a place of prayer, a place of worship. They had turned it into a den of thieves and he was filled with that righteous indignation. We see it as you read through the Gospels, Jesus, the only people that he really came down upon, the only people that he got frustrated, the only people that he showed that that anger, it was toward the religious leaders. Why? Because they were laying burdens upon the people of God that God didn't intend. And so there was that righteous indignation. And and Saul here is filled with this type of godly rage for the people of God. He's influenced by the Spirit as the Spirit comes upon him. And he gives to the people this vivid illustration for calling them to battle. Pick it up in verse 7. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his auction. Now imagine this, you're at home, the messenger comes up, he he has a little package, you know, from King Saul to you. It's wrapped up and he gives it to you, you open it up and there's a piece of cow, a piece of oxen, it's all bloody. It's all ripped up. And a little message from the king. We need to go to battle. If you don't want to come, this is what you're going to look like. You know, I mean, that's the picture here that he's painting. And here's what we learn from this. Here's what we learn from this. Because again, and I want you to note this, Saul, as he sends this little message, he does this under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. The inspiration of the Spirit of God coming upon his life. And it's God's Spirit that causes him, that leads him to act in this way. And I think what we learn from this is that God wants his people united when it comes to protecting Israel. It's important to him. Somebody's coming against my kids. There's an army that wants to do battle. There's a king that wants to gouge out their eyes. We need to rally the troops. He wants his people united when it comes to protecting Israel. Now, I couldn't help, as I was studying this today, I couldn't help think about our current battle taking place in this country concerning an institution that is very, very important to God, and that being the institution of marriage. And the biblical definition of that institution, that marriage is a union between a man, one man, and one woman. 
That the Lord declared in his word that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. But that very institution is under attack today in our country. There are those in our country who want to do away with that definition of marriage, that it's between a man, one man and one woman, and they want to make it real broad. That it could be a man and another man, a woman and another woman. It could be a man and his daughter. It could be whatever. If this is accepted. The sky's the limit. Guy could marry his car if he wanted to. And this institution that God has enacted, that He has put into place, is under attack. And I believe that just as the Lord wanted His people Israel to be united in this battle against Naash to save the people of Jabesh-Gilead, He wants the people of God today to be united in battle to save the institution of marriage. To be united. To realize that what is at stake? That this is a war. Why is this so important to God? Well, for several reasons. The first being that homosexuality is seen in the scriptures as one of the most definitive results of a nation's rebellion against God. Homosexuality. One of the most definitive marks of a nation's rebellion against God. Keep your place here. Turn over to Romans chapter 1. This is a passage of scripture that a lot of people don't like to read today. It's definitely not politically correct. Definitely flies in the face of the religion of the day tolerance. But this is the word of God. Romans chapter one, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So there's no excuse, in other words. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them up. Now here it is to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Speaking there about lesbianism. 
And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Not fitting. Unnatural, the Lord says. It's vile. It's shameful. Some of you might have followed a little bit the story of the young guy out in uh, Poway, Poway High School. Friend of mine's son, Chase Harper. Ron Harper is uh, the builder who, when we were working on the property down the street on Mason, he was our, our builder on that particular great guy. He's one of the elders at Maranatha Chapel. And his son is a sophomore in high school, loves the Lord. But one day he wore a, a shirt to school that said, using this verse, homosexuality is shameful. He got suspended. But then the one of the Christian groups kind of heard of the story and came alongside of him and a suit erupted and a lot of, you know, national attention. Chase was interviewed several times on the news and it was great. He handled himself so well, so well, a maturity beyond his years. But the Bible is very clear. Now, I want to say this. I am not. I don't hate homosexuals. I don't hate people who are lesbians. I realize that they're sinners like anybody else. What the Bible basically lays out for us is that we hate the sin and we love the sinner. Like anybody else, somebody who's in, involved in you know, pornography or drug abuse or alcoholism, I want to see them delivered. What they are doing, what they're involved in is not natural. It's unfitting. It's going against the very design that God has laid out. It's missing a long shot from his best. And what's interesting is we read this passage, what, what God is saying here, he's, he's laying out that this is one of the most definitive acts of, of rebellion against God. It's like when when a person starts to embrace this kind of sin, there's, it's like, or when a nation, I should say, embraces this kind of sin, there, there's no turning back. It was this sin that caused the Lord to do something that he didn't do very often. And that was to destroy two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, completely obliterate them because of this sin. Because of this immorality that was taking place. They have gone too far. The word vile means to dishonor. It's dishonoring to those people. They're dishonoring themselves. It's dishonoring to the Lord. It can also be translated that word vile as being filthy and dirty. The, the phrase debased mind means a reprobate mind. And it's this particular perversion that God looks at in the face of this institution of marriage that he has put into place. And it grieves his heart because it is so far removed from his will and his plan. 
and the ideal that he has set up. Another reason why it's so important is because God knows the negative impact that it has upon a nation when the family structure is weakened. And the family that God lays out in the Bible is a husband and a wife together caring for their children, training them up in the ways of the Lord. And for case in point, you only have to look at countries like Norway and Sweden and Denmark to see countries who have adopted and legalized, in a sense, this type of action and the toll that it has taken upon those countries. And reason number three that God, why this is so important to him, that the institution of marriage between one woman and one man be held as the biblical model and the model for our country and the model for all people is that it's a picture of Christ and the church. It's a picture of Jesus. And what he came to do, he came to give his life to to bring about a bride. Just as Adam was put asleep and his side was opened up and God took from from Adam one of his ribs and he formed from that rib Eve. So too, our Lord Jesus, his side was pierced. And he was laid to sleep, if you would, in a tomb. And the aftermath of that being laid in the tomb and the aftermath of that, that piercing in his side and what he went through upon the cross was that a bride was birthed. The church was born. And that's a picture that God doesn't want distorted. We read in the book of Revelation, the end of the tribulation time, at the end of the millennium, I should say, that God is going to present the city, the new Jerusalem, he's going to present them as what? A bride adorned. That's the church. That's you and I. So the people of Israel were asked here to unite together to protect Jabesh Gilead. And today we are being called to unite together. And I encourage you, if you haven't emailed or called your senator yet, do it. It takes five minutes, two minutes do it. Send a message. We need to do that. Turn back to 1 Samuel. We'll pick it up in verse 8. Chapter 11, verse 8. And when he numbered them in Bazak, the children of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah were 30,000. So 330,000. And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. And then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. And therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And so it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and they killed the Ammonites until the heat of the day. It was about a five hour battle. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So there was this great victory that took place there as Saul rallies the troops 
filled with righteous indignation, filled with the Spirit of God, the troops are rallied together, 330,000 strong, and God gives them the victory. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul rule over us, or reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Remember back there at the end of chapter 10, there were these guys who were saying, you know, ah, they weren't into Saul. He had been anointed before the people and there were those who were looking at him and, you know, I don't know, who, who is this Saul guy? Well, now, as, as Saul passes his first test, the people are rallied together and they, they have this great victory. Then there are those who start piping up and saying, hey, where are those guys that were saying they didn't want to have Saul as king? Let's go get them and let's go kill them. But Saul does a smart thing here. He shows wisdom in refraining to take action against those who opposed him. You see, Satan would have loved to use this time of victory to bring division amongst the people. This was a high point. This was a building moment for them. God had done a, a wonder. God had brought victory. And Satan would have loved here to see them get divided as a people. And Saul shows wisdom by basically allowing the Lord to be his defense. Allowing the, the Lord's working in his life using his life to be that thing which would be a testimony to the naysayers, to those who were against him. And it's a good thing to practice what we see Saul doing here. And we also see that, that Saul understood. He was wise to understand that this was a time for celebrating. It was a time for exalting the Lord, as he says, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Note that, not Saul, but the Lord. Saul's getting off to a good start. He's on the right footing here. The problem is it's not going to last, as we soon shall see. But we pick it up in verse 14. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And so all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Saul had been anointed as king and even accepted by most of the people as their king. But it's here in this battle that he proves himself to be their king. So this celebration was really a confirmation of his kingship. Now, I think it's interesting that they go to Gilgal to confirm the kingship of Saul. You see, Gilgal in Israel's history was that place of remembrance. You recall when the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River, they came out there on the other side. Where? At this very place called Gilgal. And it was there at that place, Gilgal, that Joshua set up some stones as a memorial. Stones that were on the outside of the banks of the river. And they were stones that were set there. He built a little memorial using 12 stones so that in the years to come, as people came by, 
That particular place in Israel, they would look at those stones and it would be a reminder to them. It would be a testimony to them of of God's faithfulness, how he led them through the wilderness, how he parted the waters of the Red Sea, how he stopped the waters of the Jordan. And it was a memorial. It was a place of remembrance. And and for several of the battles of the children of Israel, as they were going there into the promised land and they would go and defeat Ai. Instead of camping there at Ai and then advancing to the next spot, they would go defeat Ai, come back to Gilgal. That was the home base. That was where 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 God had them for their their place to keep coming back to for a large part of the time that they were there in the land of promise. It was their place of remembrance. And it was there at Gilgal that the kingship of Saul was confirmed. Now, I find this interesting because, you see, we also, as believers, we have our place of remembrance. We have our Gilgal. Our Gilgal is Calvary. It's the cross. It's the place that you and I need to keep coming back to to remember the victory that Jesus won for us. It's the place that we have to keep coming back to to remember what Paul declared there in Galatians chapter 2 and in Romans chapter 6 that we've been crucified with Christ. It's that place that we keep coming back to, that place of remembrance, that place of memorial where Jesus died on the cross for our sins, where Jesus, our hero, defeated death and defeated sin and defeated its power. And it was there at Calvary that the kingship of our hero, Jesus, was confirmed. And it was through his sacrifice that peace was offered to us. At Gilgal here, they offered a peace offering. At Calvary, Jesus was the peace offering so that you and I could be and experience peace with God. And just like there at Gilgal, when we come to Calvary, when we come morning by morning in our devotions to sit before the cross and reflect upon what the Lord has done for us, when we come to that place month by month at the table of communion, it's that place of rejoicing. And so here we see that Saul passes his first test as king. As we move into chapter 12, we see that God lays out the conditions upon which this new form of government in Israel would be successful. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Now Samuel said to all of Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice in all that you said to me and have made a king over you. And now here is the king walking before you. And I am old and gray headed. And look, my sons are with you. And I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. And here I am witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed whose ox I have taken or whose donkey I have taken or whom I have cheated and whom I have oppressed or from whose hand I have received any bribe with which to blind my eyes. I will restore it to you. In the midst of the celebrating, Samuel uses this moment as an opportunity to formally transfer leadership from himself to Saul. And so basically what Samuel says is, you know, look, I'm old. 
I'm gray-headed. But note, here's your king. And he walks before you. And I think Samuel's point here is that he wants them to see that as he talks here about his faithfulness as a leader, that he wants them to see that what he's handing to Saul is not a mess, but he's passing on a good legacy of leadership to King Saul. Samuel was a model leader. He was a model leader for Saul to be able to follow. He he did what was right in the sight of God. He did what was right in the sight of the people. Even when the people rejected his sons and said, you know what? They're not like you. They're into money. And they take advantage of the people. They're not like you. They don't have the same heart as you, Samuel. And we talked about that, you know, weeks ago when we were looking at that particular chapter, that there's nothing in the scriptures that that give us indication that Samuel erred as a parent. But his his sons were corrupt. And there's a lot of theories as to why that, you know, it was his neglect. It was his being busy in ministry. But the Bible doesn't tell us that. And we noted that, you know, that's a comfort to all of us who are seeking to do our best to raise up our kids in the way of the Lord. And then yet at times we see them walk away from the Lord. But Samuel there, when they bring up this accusation against his children, he doesn't try to push them and say, well, wait a second. Oh, they're not that bad. No, he doesn't. He says, "Okay, look, great. They're not fit to be judges, so they won't be judges. And here he says, look, my sons are with you. And the idea there is look, they're not up here on the platform. They're not up in a place of prominence. They're down there amongst you. They're with the people. They were in the audience. And so Samuel conducted himself in an exemplary way amongst the people of Israel. Think about Samuel. He lived his life in a fishbowl. I mean, from the time that he was just a young kid, he was in the public eye. Taken there into the house of Eli, the priest and the people of Israel, they watched him. They saw him grow up and they saw him turn into this this great man of God. And here he gives this testimony. This challenge concerning his life, his life, he conducted himself in a way that was above reproach. It was a great testimony and it's a great example. It's a great example to all of us who desire that God would use our lives. Paul lays out there in his criteria for bishops and and elders there in First Timothy. One of the first things he says about them and about, about deacons is that they would be men who would be above reproach where no accusation could be brought against them. No serious accusation, nothing that could stick concerning their character. For those of you who work out in the workplace, we should be able to call the place where you work and to ask and say, hey, tell me about Bill. Tell me about Dave. Tell me, what is he like? What is he as a worker? What is he as a man? What is his character? What is his integrity? And we should be able to get a good report from the people that you work with, that you live by. For those who desire that that God might use their lives. For those of you who have your own business and you've done business with with people that that there there should be able to to be that sense from them that, that a good report. He was honest. He worked hard. Samuel lays out this testimony 
to the people, that he didn't take advantage of them. And Israel affirms the blamelessness of Samuel's leadership. Verse four, it says, and they said, you have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. And then he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and has anointed his witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, he is witness. Israel knew Samuel had been a good, godly leader, that he had not led them for what he could get from them, but he led them with this mindset of what he could give to them. And that that always is the heart of a of a true godly leader. Not what I can get from the people, but what can I give to them? That's the priceless testimony of a leader of God. How precious to stand before people that you've ministered to and and know that that's true of your life. Well, the next thing that Samuel does here is he recounts the Lord's past deliverances of Israel. We read in verse six. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still. I want to pause there for a minute. This is such an important principle. Samuel, in the midst of the celebration, is saying, stop. Stand still. And sometimes I think the Lord would say that very thing to us, to us today. That he would say to us today, there's a need to stop, stand still, stop the activity, stop the movement, stop the distractions and consider the work of the Lord. I ask you this question tonight. How often? How often does God get your full undivided attention? How often does he get that? The radio's off, the TV's off. It's a time when maybe the kids aren't around. How often does he get your full, undivided attention? You know, this morning, I struggled in my devotions because my mind was distracted. My mind was just in a, I, I would read and then I'd sit there and I'd go, what did I just read? And I'd read it again, and I and I, I struggled with this passage for for probably a good forty minutes, where I was reading at today, and and just distracted. And sometimes that happens, and when that happens in my life, I I have to either read out loud, or I've got to go take a walk, or I've got to. St- put myself in a place where I can just start worshiping the Lord. I got to do something to break through that distraction. And usually it's one of those type of things that 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 helps me. Because I want God to have my full undivided attention. Listen, God deserves our full undivided attention. He deserves that from us. The first fruits of our day. In that way. So Samuel says to them, stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and your fathers. When Jacob had gone into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought 
your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroths. But now deliver us from the hand of our enemies and we will serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Bedin and Japheth and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you dwelt in safely. And when you saw that Naash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you and you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Samuel in this remembrance here, is reminding them of God's faithfulness, of how he worked in their midst throughout their history, starting with the time when they were going through the exodus and entering into the land of promise, that God was faithful, that his acts amongst them were righteous acts. But then he brings up here that although God has been good and faithful leader, the point in this reminiscing the point in going back and taking them back once again to look at their history. This is like the third time we've seen him do this. Is that he, he wants them to see God has been faithful and he has been good. He has been a faithful and good leader to you. And what we're seeing here is that the Lord is reiterating to the people through Samuel, this king that you want, is not my best. It's not my perfect will, but I'll permit it. And once again, I think this story illustrates very clearly that there is a perfect will of God and there is a permissive will of God that's available to us. But we have a choice. And if you want to choose to accept that which is less than the perfect will of God for you, He will allow it. And it can even work out to be a good thing. But there will be conditions. And that's really what we're seeing here. God is saying, if you want a king, fine. Here's your king. But God is going to lay out guidelines concerning how this new government, them moving from a theocracy where God was their leader to a monarchy where now they were going to have a man as their leader. God says, here's how it needs to work. We pick it up in verse 13. Now, therefore... Here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue to follow the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Here's the condition that God lays out for their success. As long as you and your king are walking in obedience and walking in the fear of the Lord, you're going to do well. God is saying, look, if you want a human figurehead that you can look to, fine. 
It's not necessary, but fine. If that's what you really want, I will give that to you. But as long as you and that figurehead know that I am still in charge, and as long as that figurehead, that king, is looking to me, the result will be you'll prosper. You're going to do well. But the minute that he takes his eyes off of me, the minute that he ceases to fear me, to walk in that reverence is what that means of me, the minute that he ceases to obey me, the result will be disaster. You see, Saul was meant to be an instrument of God to lead the people to the Lord. And every true leader is one who allows himself to be a man, to be a woman who is ruled by God. And if a person is not ruled by God, he will, he'll be a tyrant. I pity the husband who claims and says, I'm the boss of my home. I pity that person because you'll lead your home astray. You'll lead your home astray. No, guys, what we should be saying is I'm a man under authority. I'm a man who wants to be ruled by God. And as that man under authority, I will then allow God, being my authority, to show me how to lead my family and minister to my family. God wants to rule your home if you'll let Him. He wants to Rule your business if you let him. He wants to rule your relationships if you let him. God desires that you and I would be people ruled by him. That we would realize that as believers, we are people under authority. People that are yielded to God and his word and the voice of His Spirit in our hearts. If we will do that, in whatever endeavor that we are getting involved in, whatever we, we put our hand to, if we realize, look, I'm a person under authority, and I'm under the authority of God, we'll prosper. We'll be like that tree planted by the rivers of water that doesn't wither, whose leaf doesn't wither, and it gives forth fruit in its season. That will be our lives. But oh, if we say, you know what? I don't want to be a man under authority. I want to be a man of authority. Then we're headed for disaster. And we see this really in our country. Think about it. as Samuel retraces the past history of Israel. Think about the past history of, of America. This country founded as a nation that was yielded to God. For those of you who like to read, a great book I would highly recommend is a book by Peter Marshall called The Light and the Glory. And he talks about how our country was founded. It's an easy reading. It's very interesting. And he cites many, many different examples from, from past leaders in our country who were not what the current history books try to uh, portray them as being, but being men who did indeed yield and trust their hearts to God. You know, our money says in God we trust, but that sure isn't exemplified in the way that we conduct ourselves. And how far have we moved from where we started? And what's the result of that? Here's the results. 
of what has happened to our country, that we've moved from being a country under the authority of God to a country that is now ruling itself. We have the highest violent crime rate in the world today. We have the highest rate of teen suicide in the world today. We have the highest rate of teen pregnancy in the world today. We have the highest amount of rapes in the world today that take place in this country. We have the highest percentage of divorces in the world in this country. That's what's happened. Because America is no longer a nation that is under the authority of God. And we need to pray. But that's what Samuel is warning against here, that Israel, if they would forsake the Lord, there would be dire consequences. Verse 16, now, therefore, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes is today not the wheat harvest. I will call to the Lord and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking a king for yourselves. And so Samuel called to the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. This was an uncommon thing to have rain and thunder during uh, the time of the wheat harvest. And it was a warning to them because such a storm could completely obliterate their crops. And so it was a warning to them. God was sending them a sign and they got the message. Let's pick it up in verse 19. We'll wrap it up. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. Notice there's sorrow here, but not repentance. They don't say, the heck with Saul. We want you, God, to be our king. There's sorrow. And God's going to continue to let him go down this path of his permissive will. Then Samuel said to the people, do not fear. You have done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart and do not turn aside for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver for they are nothing or they are vain for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. A couple of quick things. It's interesting that he lays out here. If you turn aside, this is going to be the result. You're going to turn aside to empty things, things that won't satisfy you. And it's interesting how God is really placed inside of the heart of every single human being, a drive for worship. But if we're not worshiping God, we will worship something else. But the things that we worship will be things that will be empty. They'll be like broken cisterns of water that can't hold water. And so they can't quench our thirst. You were made to worship God, to be a worshiper of God. 
to pour out your heart to him. And Samuel here is is giving that exhortation for them to worship the Lord. But I love what he says in verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it pleased the Lord to make you his people. And there are several key thoughts here. First, it pleased the Lord to make you his people. I love that phrase. Because you see, we're also told in the word that it pleased God to bruise his son. Why? Because through the bruising of his son, he made us his people. We're told in Hebrews for the joy sent, the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? Because he saw what was going to come out of that. A bride, you and I, his bride. It pleased the Lord to make you his people. And, And I would just want you to go away tonight with this thought. God is pleased tonight that you are his child. I encourage you to accept that. He's pleased. He's blessed. That you belong to him. That you are his child. Secondly, God will be faithful to you because his name and reputation are at stake. He'll be faithful to you. But also notice in verse 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Here we see that prayerlessness is a sin. Oftentimes we think of sin as the things that we are doing that are wrong. But sin can also be the things that we're not doing that are right. There are sins of commission, but there are also sins of omission. And this is something I think that all of us should really take heart in tonight to consider Samuel says, look, if I cease to pray for you, it would be a sin. It would be wrong. I would be in great error if I did that. That's a good word, I think, for us tonight. We need to be praying for this country. We need to be praying for our church. We need to be praying for our young people. We need to be praying for our families. And may we not be a people who are guilty of ceasing to pray. To pray for those that God has entrusted into our care. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we do come before you tonight. And though, though, Lord, it's late, Lord, we cry out to you for this nation. That, Lord, you would bring us to that place of repentance. And Lord, for we who are a part of your church, your bride. Lord, let us not be lackadaisical. In these days. That we would allow. The enemy. To come in and blind and distort. And take people captive. But Lord, let us be vocal, let us be strong. In the strength that is in you to stand against the tide. And Lord, we pray for all of our senators as they in the coming weeks have to go on record concerning this amendment, concerning the biblical view of marriage. Lord, I pray that those men and women would do what's right. 
that they would be filled with the fear of God. And Lord, I pray for your church that we would sound off, that we would fight, that we would battle. And Lord, forgive us for our lack of prayer. To those of us that that applies to. And Lord, teach us to pray. Give us a burden in these last days for those that need you. That need to be delivered from the bondage of alcoholism and drug abuse and lesbianism and homosexuality and the list goes on and on. Lord, just from sin, from gossip and covetousness that they might find freedom in you. And Lord, may we be individuals whose lives are under your authority, that you would lead us, that we would walk in the fear of the Lord all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen.